You're listening to Amphibicast. A special shout-out this week goes to our newest sponsor, the Frog Breeder Merch Store. Show off your love for frogs and conservation by picking up some unique amphibian merchandise with a portion of the proceeds going to Panamanian Amphibian Conservation and Research. With everything from adults to kids to stickers to t-shirts, the Frog Breeder Merch Store has everything for the frog lover out there. To find out more and to purchase some merch, check out the-frog-breeder-merch.myspreadshop.com and follow the link in the show description. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and this week, I am so psyched. I have Julio Rodriguez, and we're going to talk about Ophaga Slavatica koi. And if you've been kind of paying attention to what's going on in the dart frog hobby in the past couple of years, a new locale that's going to soon become available in the trade uh, legally through Tesoros, I believe, is the Ufaga Savatica Koi locale. It, it's absolutely stunning. It's like, it, it, it doesn't even seem real. And uh, Julio recently made a trip down to Colombia, was able to see some of them in situ, kind of was able to check out the environment. And uh, pretty cool. We're going to talk about his trip. And we're going to talk about Savatica as a species because I feel like it's one of those species I've kind of kind of alluded to here and there, but we've never really done more of an in-depth episode about them. So we're going to cover that. But uh, before that, of course, the th- you know, thanks everybody for the support, the five-star reviews and Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I uh, just got the update from uh, Spotify with the stats for the year. I want to thank everybody for the support. Uh, a lot of new listeners this year. A lot of people picked up the show in, two- in uh, 2023. So I'm grateful for that. All the new listeners. Thank you. And uh, for the Spotify people, I got to tell you, I noticed that there is the option to comment on some of the episodes and i've gotten some feedback that there were responses and whatnot Uh, i'm not seeing them on my end so it might just be me being kind of out of touch with the technology but uh, if you guys do post a comment or a reply or something like that on the spotify platform uh, take a screenshot or something like that maybe uh, send it to me on instagram or something like that just so i can see what's going on Uh, might help me interact with the audience get some uh, ideas of what you guys like and what you don't like a little bit better and uh, of course you know to support the show just real quick uh link tree in the show notes Patreon, $5 uh, $5 tier will get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. I've got tiers as low as a dollar a month if you want to support the show. Uh, Links to the merch store. You'll also find a link to this week's sponsor, uh, Frog Breeder Merch, a separate link. uh, goes to support research and conservation in in, uh, Panama through Sam Sucre. And uh, everything else, like I said, check out the link tree. I don't want to waste too much time because we're a little bit short, but uh, I want to get into it. Julio, thank you for coming, uh, talking to me again. What's what's going on since we talked last? Uh, I think it was a couple of months ago, right? We talked. Yeah. Although we talk all the yeah, time. I off mean, air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, just got back from Colombia a couple of weeks ago. So, as you said, I got to see, uh, you know, koi in, in their natural habitat. And so it was definitely an experience. Um, you know, we went down to go see. Uh, originally, our trip always start, you know, with a visit to Totoro. So, um this time we went for two days to Tesoros because uh, I know, you know, one day wasn't going to be enough. Usually in the past, we would just make a one day trip to Tesoros. But, you know, we planned it out this time that it was going to be a two day trip at their facility um, so that we can see pretty much all this stuff in detail. Um, so, I mean, they have a lot of new stuff they're working with. As you mentioned, they have a lot of Sylvatica localities, uh, some of the koi. Um, you know, the blue foots, the yellow foots, uh, let's see what else do they have as far as, uh, they have a couple of maregas there. Um, I would say probably about 
six or seven different thumbnail morphs, some of Pestamella, some Andina Beatties. Uh, so that was that was exciting to see for sure. So besides all the other histos and you know and Lamani that they're working with at the facility as well. Yeah, I remember when I did the episode a while back with with you and and Ivan. And I mean, I I know Ivan pronounces his name Ivan. I got to kind of get get on that. But um, when, <laughs> I know I feel so bad. I mispronounce his name. But like when when you me and Ivan were talking, we discussed someone like the new stuff, and it's it's interesting how you can kind of go from a species that just seems so like, shrouded in mystique and mystery and whatnot, and then. Finally, they're going to come in as legal shipments for what I'm going to assume is going to be the first time. I don't even know when these locales were discovered, but um, I mean, is it fair to say that there's going to be a substantial batch of stuff coming in from Tesoros that no one has ever really seen in the hobby before? Yeah, I mean, there, there's quite a few more. Um, you know, there's a, f- a couple more that I have pictures of that I obviously I, I cannot disclose that. Um, you know, I was trying to show some of the stuff that they talked about. When I did the Instagram live down there, you know, I was trying to go live on Instagram all the way down there. Unfortunately, their their power grid down there is just, you know, it's gotten weaker and weaker now. So it's like, you know, it just, my my feet kept coming in and out, in and out, and then, you know, we had that day we actually went to see go see Andino Baby Supata in in Habitat, and you know, there was an accident on the road, and we got caught in that blockade for a while. So by the time we got back to Tesoros, it was like, you know, pretty much dark out. So all the lights were out. So I wasn't going to bother the frogs just to, you know, do an Instagram live, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I mean, the, it's exciting to see what's going to be coming out for sure. Um, you know, you have those, the koi that are just white and red. Then you have the blue-footed morph. And you also have the... You know, the ones that have the black marbling on the back, um, you know, so it's great. The white foot, of course, and then you have somewhat of a different white foot variation. It's kind of a different morph that's found in a different region. Um, it only has white on the feet alone. That's it. You know, the rest of the body is kind of like a, a giant red Vicente, really. Um, you know, so... And it's it's pretty exciting to see all the stuff that's going to be coming out. I was wondering if you could just give us a quick run through of Sylvatica as a species. I mean, we I've I've talked about Lamani a couple of times. I've talked about uh, Histrionica. I've talked about a lot about Pamelia, but I never really did much in the way of Sylvatica. What, what can you tell us about the species? Is there anything that differentiates them from anything else in the Ophaga genus, or? If you were to compare them with other dot frogs outside of Ufaga, like Phyllobates or Tinctorius or any of the other species, like how do they like how do they rank up, and what's unique about them? I mean, they're they're pretty much just like you know Histrionica or Lamani. Um, to be honest with you, I mean, some morphs are big, um, others are smaller. You know, we did see one of those smaller morphs on this trip, this past trip, uh, which I had never seen before. And it was kind of interesting because it's actually like I would say twice the size of maybe of, a, of an El Dorado Pamelio. You know, that's how small it was. And, um, you know, we even spoke to um, Daniel towards the end of the trip and he was telling us about how his friend was actually in the forest for quite a while. And he actually found uh, a Sylvatica morph that was like the size of a blue jean with the same exact coloration. Um, but unfortunately, he got captured by the gorillas. 
you know, they held him for about four or five days and they took away his phone. So he didn't have any pictures or anything, you know, uh, so he was lucky they let him go. But, you know, that's that's as far as we know what, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's fairly unexplored in that region just simply because of the danger factor. You know, this trip was originally planned for, I believe, uh, in June or July. And then we had to cancel, you know, due to safety. And then, you know, it got rescheduled. And then finally, we're like, you know what? October, we're going to go. And uh, so everything was a lot calmer back then. And uh, that's what we were able to get a window of safety. And, you know, there was no turning back at that point. I have to just back up about the wait. So a guy went there, got a picture of probably a morph that's never been seen before, may never be seen again, and he got captured by gorillas. And I, yeah, wow, I got to get this guy on the show. Oh man, that's wild. <laughs> that is some story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so they held him captives for about four or five days. He said, and then you know, they took away his phone and everything. And, uh, yeah. So you found that population that's basically the size of a pamelio, of a blue jean pamelio. And it has the exact same coloration of a blue jean pamelio. That's amazing. That's wow. That's incredible. I, 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 I always wonder about places in the world that are just, I mean, we're, we're like, we're babies here in the U S and Canada and the UK. Like we got it made like certain parts of the world the political climate is just very, very volatile. And this is dangerous, you know? And I often wonder like yeah. how that affects local populations and different local, uh, like different locales and morphs. And like, you have to ask yourself like how many species were, were, were like never seen by anybody outside of the country, outside of that area because of whatever, you know, geopolitical issues that were, were going on. It's just, it, it's, so, it's so crazy to think like almost like certain, certain locales might've actually been saved indirectly by, political uh, political strife it's wild oh yeah yeah it's 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 unbelievable and but at the same time it also helps the populations you know as far as being protected um you know i know tato the tato population where um you know that that area used to be somewhat dangerous you know there that population used to be very very abundant now from what i hear it's just like you know because things have gotten safer in that area now the forest has been chopped down you know, that population, pretty much the Tados are, are disappearing from the wild. Now they're really rare to see in the wild. So, you know, frogs that used to be very common and just becoming pretty rare. And sadly, hopefully it doesn't go that route, but, you know, it might be one of those morphs that we would only see in captivity, you know, in the next 10 years. Yeah, nothing surprises me. And and the, the country, like the, the terrain itself, like the physical aspect of, of the country i mean it was pretty rough i remember you posted something on instagram and i i i was kind of chuckling because you see you seem pretty upset about being there it was kind of funny um but it was it was a hard hike into wherever you went right i mean it was not like you're not just gonna like go off a go off a yeah. trail and get down there right <laughs> yeah i mean this was by far the toughest hike i've ever been on um you know so basically we get to the trailhead and one of the guys is like, you know, our, our main guy from Tesoros is like, you know, this is one of the top three toughest hikes we've ever I've ever done. I was like, now you tell me that. I was like, I didn't bring enough water, dude. You know, you told me it was going to be a two-hour hike each way, you know. So, and of course, 
you know, you go down there, you, you go to any country in Latin America and they tell you, oh, yeah, it's just a short walk this way. You know, it ends up being a couple of kilometers, you know, because they're, they're used to walking everywhere, you know. So to them, it's just a short walk, you know. But when they tell you it's a long walk, then you can expect a couple, like, quite a lot of miles, you know. So this was about, I think, if I remember correctly, it was seven kilometers down down the mountain. So we started pretty much at the top of the mountain, you know, so, and then it just goes straight downhill and, you know, you go downhill, but then you got to come back up, obviously. So, yeah. Um, you know, I didn't have enough water. I had two bottles of water basically. Um, and then one of them I was using to rinse off frogs when we (laughs) were taking them to take pictures of. So then at one point I was just like, you know what? I'm just drinking water from a stream. It was completely clean. There was no rain at that point, you know? So I was like, you know what? That's what I'm doing. And that's what I ended up doing. But then on the way back up, I was completely dehydrated. What's, you know, I was, I would walk about a hundred feet and I start to get dizzy. So I have to sit down, you know? And so it, it was that, that tough of a hike, you know, for sure. That's rough. Wow. Uh, I mean, what what was like, was there a certain, I mean, obviously I'm not going to ask you to give out a specific location or like any crazy details, but I mean, were they, were they in a valley? Like, did they, did you go to a certain spot where they were kind of, they restricted to like, I mean, I, I remember t- I was talking to um, Josh Allen in Peru and he was telling me there are certain species that you'll just find at this very, very specific elevation. Was that something similar with the koi? Did you just only find them in a certain little biome or were they kind of more spread out? Well, we, we think their their population is pretty widespread, to be honest with you. Um, this was a new population that Tesoros had discovered, you know, after taking, you know, numerous trips there to try and find a population that, that's not within any reserve whatsoever. You know, so they found this population and it's pretty widespread. And what happens is as you start to go down, you know, they they start to change in color. So when you first, you know, the first morph that, you, that you'll find is going to be the blue-footed koi morph, you know, which is usually with the red solid back and the blue legs, you know, which we started calling the Superman morph, um, you know, so it's, it's interesting. And then as you start to go down, you know, you start to lose some of the red, you know, and some of the red now starts to mix with black. So you start to get the black marbling, um, then... You know, you go all the way down and there's a river there, you know, and then you grow across the river and it's pretty much, you know, the morph changes to almost completely solid white, you know. So it's like very real little red speckling and there's some that are just solid white. There was one solid white one with nothing on it that we, we only saw it on a tree. We were trying to catch it and then we just lost it, you know. And the forest is so dense and so pristine, you know, it's probably, and there's so much to see. So it's like part of the reason why it took us so long to get down there is because, you know, everywhere you look, you know, there's plants that you've only seen pictures of, or there's, you know, an insect that is pretty cool to look at, you know? So there's a lot to see. There's so much to see there, you know, and it's just so many micro mosses, you know, miniature peperomias, you know, all kinds of philodendrons. It's just amazing. Where were the frogs in terms of like the, 
layers of canopy like were they in the understory where like did you find them like where did you find them in relation to the ground because i know that certain like we talked about pamilio getting up pretty high like 100 feet up for display and for deposition sites and whatever like where were they in terms of like you know their location within the the stratum of the um of the rainforest so every the majority of the frogs we found were mostly males you know we were playing a call and they would come out and they would be about three to four feet high off the ground they would either be on a branch on a mossy branch calling from there you know but the second you get close to them they just dive down into this root system you know and a ridiculous amount of leaf litter you're talking about you know easily you know between 12 to 16 inches of leaf litter in there you know so and once a frog gets in there man it's just like nearly impossible to catch them and you know the root system at every tree is just incredible you know they get in a hole that's it you're not they're not coming out did you see any egg deposition sites at all or any evidence of, of tadpoles or females at all no i mean it was just the beginning of the rainy season you know when we got there um so but it was you know it's constantly wet here it, it rains all the time it rains every day you know but during the rainy season it just rains a lot heavier um, we, we did not get to see many bromelias in there, which is usually, you know, the primary problem with a lot of the, the Ufagas is there, there isn't enough bromelias to go around. You know, if, if you guys ever visit, you know, any population of frogs, same thing with bromelias, there's deposition sites is mostly the problem, you know, besides habitat loss. Um, it's just the fact that there isn't enough deposition sites. Yeah, I, I've I've had conversations with people telling me the same thing. You know, like certain people use um, I'm trying to remember who was it. Might I know I keep bringing up Josh Allen. It might have been Josh Allen. I think he said they were using like upside down, like plastic soda bottles, for I think it was for Ranitomea. And these things were just laying eggs in there like crazy. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the Peru sites they have uh you know, a lot of them have clear plastic bottles hanging from the trees in some areas, you know, so the frogs use them for deposition sites. Um, I know Understory had a property over in Tesuda that, you know, and we took a trip with them about in 2010. And, um, you know, Mark was telling us that uh, before they place all these cubs in the forest, you know, there's submersi in that area and it says it would take them two weeks to see one submersi. You know, so, and then once they started doing that, you know, the population got a little more abundant, you know, and they were able to see them a little more frequent. What else did you see besides the koi? Were there any other interesting, I mean, obviously that's a silly question because you probably saw all sorts of incredible stuff, but like, were there any other frogs there? Like any other, like any other species besides um, histrionica? I mean, we got to see a pest. Uh, there is a species of Epidobates nariniensis, uh, which is a green Epidobates. We didn't get a chance to see that. We did hear it calling, you know, along the hike, but unfortunately, we weren't able to catch it. Uh, they're pretty elusive, you know, and in a green forest, it's, you know, it's like, yeah, finding a needle in a haystack. Um, yeah, so we weren't able to see that morph, and we did manage to catch a glass frog, you know, as we were. Um, taking pictures of a koi there. And so we were able to take pictures of that. And then we found out that it was actually a fairly common uh, glass frog, actually. Um, I haven't posted pictures of it yet. I can't even remember the species of it. 
but it's found throughout Ecuador, Colombia, and I believe Panama as well. Interesting. So how, I mean, just rough idea, how long do you think it'll be before they're available outside of Colombia? I mean, they're, they're shooting probably, I would say, for the end of uh, 2024. You know, it all depends on, you know, as, as far as, like, how permits go with, because uh, Cesaros has to get an export permit. Uh, so it's not just, every species has to have an export permit. So they might have the numbers ready to go or the frogs ready to go. But until they get, they're given that permit to export, you know, there's nothing they can do. They got to sit on the frogs there. Um, you know, and then on top of that, they got to they got to get a permit to transport the frogs to the airport, and you know, so it, it's nuts. <laughs> it's not just here's your money and send me my frogs, you know. Yeah, I remember him telling me. I think what was it like um, there was there was a, a big export. I'm trying to remember when it was. It was I mean, from the time we're recording this, I think it was probably like a good six six or eight months ago, because I know a shipment came in and then somehow it went to. Canada, um, like I think like Alec Brown and Mike Titula and a couple other people, like they they brought something. I think it was to Soros that they got something in from. But yeah, and like yeah. when Yvonne was telling me, it's, I was like, oh man, like this is a nightmare trying to get these things out of the country in one piece. And I think he was telling me like what, like he drove the frogs all the way there, and then like he had to drive them all the way back home because there was something the something going on with the permit or something. I don't remember, but it was. I, I, I give yeah. him like so much credit. Like to be able to do that is just like I we, I, I, I couldn't handle stress. It's that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely stressful for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, when they come in, I'm I'm just I'm looking at I've seen your photos. Um, I actually, well, actually, I have the photograph that I got from you in American Frog Day like two years ago. I think it was what, like 2021 or something like that. I got it hanging up on my wall. Yeah. But I'm looking at some some Google images. So obviously there's a lot of variation in the one locale, which is going by Koi, obviously. Is there a particular phenotype that he's working with or is it going to kind of just be like a combination of all, because, I mean, I'm looking at the, it runs the gamut here from, like, what you told me about the, kind of like the Superman-looking frog with the, the like, really, really, almost like a deep blue and a red to the mottled kind of koi pattern with the black and, you know, black and red, gold yeah. and white, and then the almost all white. Are these going to be subdivided into, like, more specific locales, or is that just kind of like a normal, or what do you think? Like, is that just kind of like a normal variability within one locale? Well, yeah, I mean, the the variability changes with the elevation, you know, so it's not it's not a locality type thing. It's more of an elevation thing, you know, but there are there there are grouping them based on coloration. So, you know, because that's how they, they were found, you know, so. um, So the pairs that they got towards the top of the mountain, obviously, they're going to breed those together and, and, and so on and, you know, to so get down. So they're going to release them in phases, you know, based on coloration. Um, you know, the one thing that I've been always concerned about is, you know, whether or not they're going to breed true or they're, are they going to have some marbling and stuff like that? So, you know, but I, I, I think they'll breed true for sure. Um, I don't think they'll have any marbling and that picture that you mentioned from, yeah, that was the first trip that we took to that region. That was five years ago, you know, and our main trip, that trip, the objective of that trip was to go see Koi. You know, and when we got there, they told us, no, it's not safe 
you know, it's not safe for us to go. So we're not going to be able to go see them. Um, so we were like, okay, I guess, you know, we'll, we'll try and see something else. So we went to the Whitefoot habitat or Whitefoot population. So and we found that frog in habitat with the Whitefoots. And the reason why we got that frog was because the guy who's the owner of the property there, um, you know, he happened to be one of the biggest smugglers. I wouldn't say smugglers, but I would say he would go collect frogs, you know, for, you know, Germans that would come by and place an order. So he told us that he had that frog. He had basically he had 20 frogs, 20 koi in his possession. You know, the guy never showed up for two weeks and then he released it in Whitefoot Habitat. That was the only reason why we found that frog, you know. And this particular trip that we just took, you know, this past few weeks ago, you know, we were trying to look for that frog. We couldn't find it. And um, the interesting thing is that he would tell us, this guy told us that he himself pulled out 1,500 koi's at least, you know, from that region and just released them over, you know, into into uh, Whitefoot habitat. And he says they, they just wind up dying. For whatever reason, nobody knows why, you know. And the interesting thing about this this town is that they all have woven baskets, like, you know, with palms and stuff like that. And um, they used to go collect frogs, go collect kois, whitefoods, whatever, whatever it was. And they would just keep them in these woven baskets, you know. And then when they get word saying the gringo's coming, you know, so the gringo would go. They would sit in front of their house with the basket of frogs on their porch. And then whoever was coming, you know, they would go. Go look in their basket and pick out whatever frogs they wanted. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Which was crazy. So on the last trip that we took five years ago, we got them to stop smuggling frogs, you know, and we told them that the frogs are, are more valuable there, you know, so we, we pay them a fee every time we come see the frogs instead of, because he was selling the frogs for $1.50, believe it or not, which is 1,500 pesos, you know, which is insane. That's unbelievable. You know, with as many frogs that have been smuggled out of that area, you would think that they would be all over the hobby, really. You know, but they're not. Just people just kill them. Yeah, it's it's almost like it's it's self limiting. Like it, what's weird is you think that, like people will people will pay a high premium for something that's that's rare or new. We all know that. I mean, that applies to everything. But you think that after a while, like you know, people who are doing things not on the straight and narrow would say, Hey, you know what? Like we're paying top dollar for these things and they're all dying. Like what's, what's the point? You know what I mean? It just seems like it would, after a while, the market would kind of peter out because people would kind of realize it's not worth it to sink, you know, however many thousands and thousands of dollars into something that's barely going to make it for a couple of weeks in, in, in captive care. Yeah. I mean, people just want what they can't get, you know, it's one of those, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, you know, it's one of those factors where, you know, let's say whoever wants, you know, they want a luxury car, but they can't have a luxury car, you know, but they're going to do everything they can to get that luxury car, even though, you know, it's, it means paying for something out of their means, you know, so they'll pay for They'll have a nice car, but they won't pay their rent. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. I, I I know how I know how that goes. <laughs> um, I definitely know how that goes. I I see people driving around and it's like, like you're driving like this. Like people will trick out cars like like a Honda Civic, and it's like you you dumped like what ten fifteen grand to a Honda Civic. Like, why? Yeah. I don't know, but I'm I'm sorry if anyone drives a Honda Civic. Um, <laughs> when was the koi locale first identified as unique? When were they found in the wild? When were they found? Oh God! I mean, it was a very long time ago. Um, you know, there's there's books and uh, I think there's pictures in in that book of uh, Jewels of the Rainforest. You know. And um, I believe back in the 1980s, I know Chuck Nishihara had actually gone down to the reserve down there. Um, I don't want to mention the name just because there is a reserve down there, but it, that reserve does not have a, a good community relationship down there. Um, you know, that everybody knows it's found in El Pangan and, you know, that reserve that's there just, just not work with the community. Um, so... I know Chuck. Last time we we went for five years ago, and yeah, happened to run into Chuck in Colombia, and he was telling us that he was trying to get access to it again, and you know they wouldn't let him in, and you know we were trying to get access to it also, but they wouldn't let us in either, you know. And then my last email to them was like, okay, but you rather have a shipment of frogs show up from your reserve at the airport every two months? That's okay to you, and they never responded to that, so. That's wild. I I mean, like, do they? So when you go down there repeatedly, I'm assuming like whatever powers that be are down there. Like, do they? Like, will they catch wise? Will they recognize you after like two or three trips and be like, hey, like I don't want this guy down here. Uh, I mean, it, it could be that way, um, you know. Um, but who really knows? I mean, this is only our second trip there. The last time we went, you know, we went to an area where. We had to drive, we went to this indigenous reserve, you know, we had to drive down this road that, you know, they told us you need to put, have your windows down basically, you know, cause they need to see inside your car. Um, you know, so even, even if it's raining because, you know, it's a dangerous area and if they don't see who's driving through there, you know, they're just going to shoot up the car. We did get stopped at that trip and, you know, by military, you know, there's armored vehicles on the road. You know, it, the police station looks like a fort. You know, they don't carry handguns. It's all M16s. You know, they're ready to shoot at any point, basically. So, I, I <laughs> this, I mean, that's, that's, dude, I got to give you credit, man. You got to be like, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's, 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 that's brutal. Wow. I mean, I can tell you, this is, this is by far the most dangerous area I've ever been to, you know, in South America. The second most dangerous area was actually northern Ecuador, you know. So, it and this is close to the border, Ecuadorian border also, so. Yeah, it's a little, tumult, little tumultuous down there. Yeah, Yikes. I mean, it's just, you know, it's all drug territory. You know, there's cocaine plantations everywhere. You know, there's a pipeline that runs, you know, a national pop pipeline that has crude oil there. And some of the, you know, some people tap into that and, you know, to, 
run their drug machines and stuff. So, and we're worried about little tiny frogs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that, I mean that whole area down there is scary, you know. So we were originally we were, we were planning maybe do a night hike and stuff and. You know, we didn't just simply because by the time we got back from, you know, that koi hike, we were just, our legs were sore. My legs were sore for definitely for a week after that hike, you know. So it took a lot out of me. And, you know, so we knew the, I knew for a fact that the other, all the other localities that we were hoping to see were going to be a lot easier to find and a lot, a lot easier as far as, you know, hiking wise. You know, so. And that's why we we did the koi, you know, more first, and in case we didn't find it on the first day, then we would have a chance to go back and and look for it the next day as well. Well, I mean, you got some pretty good photos. I'm on your I'm on your Instagram, and I mean, yeah. I give you a lot of credit for putting in the work to go out there. And the photos are incredible. It's a really beautiful morph. So, I mean, for anybody who's not familiar with Sylvatica and might want to venture into the species like what tips do you have in terms of maybe background experience i mean can can a beginner start off with a large obligate or actually are they large obligate or like what would you consider yeah they are okay so yeah they're considered large obligates yeah so like let's just say you wanted to get into savatica how would you set up a tank what would you kind of need to have in terms of experience under your belt maybe behaviors like what like, what would you expect if you wanted to start keeping them in captivity? I mean, some of the some of the Sylvatica morphs come from drier forests. Some come from wetter forests. Um, the main thing is do your research. You know, there's a lot of uh, on my Instagram. I have a bunch of uh, you know habitat videos that you can kind of take a look at. You know, from the whitefoot habitat to the yellowfoot habitat to the koi habitat. Um, those are pretty similar. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, wetness and how wet the forest is, it's pretty soggy and yellowfoot and whitefoot territory, you know, it's soggy everywhere. It's moss everywhere, you know, leaf litter. And on top of that leaf litter, below that leaf litter, actually, there's there's all clay, you know. Um, so and then, of course, the main thing is, you know, the density of leaf litter, um, you know, with, with a lot of large obligates, people that usually want to start out with, you know, it's not a it's not a matter of having a lot of experience. It's just a matter of setting up the right tank. So you need a, you know, I would say if you're if you're starting out, you know, get yourself a large tank with a lot of ventilation, you know, and you know you can close off some of the vents with a piece of glass if you think your tank is getting too dry, you know, but the they require quite a bit of airflow in my experience. That's mainly what it is. So you don't want to just seal up the tank and just have absolutely stagnant air 24 seven. So. Would you say you want like humid air that's circulating well, or do you want like dry air to come in and kind of like dry out between mistings, for example? Yeah, I mean, humid air works great. If you can build a closed-loop circulation system, that would be great. You know, that, that'll that work absolutely, you know, wonderful. We pretty much had, you know, Alberto Catalini had invented this ventilation box, you know, that Chris Sherman was building. And it would basically have a fan in the middle, 
you know, and two vent holes on each side, you know, so it was drawing air from each side up and then just pushing it down in the middle with the, you know, with the computer fan. Interesting. Is there a certain, like, are there certain percentages that you aim for? You just sort of eyeball it when you want to check parameters on different locales that have different requirements? Yeah, I mean, with the captive bred frogs, it's going to be a lot easier um, in terms of, you know, uh, they're they're going to be a lot more tolerant of humidity. Um, they're going to be a little more tolerant of heat. Just try not to keep them too hot. Um, usually, you want to keep them around seventy-eight, you know, eighty-two max. Uh, but a high temperature seventy-eight, and if you can have a drop to about, you know, low seventies or high sixties at night, that's great. You know, these fours, it gets cold at night. You know, so you you can see your breath at times in the morning. You know, it's just simply because it, it does get cold. It gets cold to about 50 degrees at night. You know, I just had another thought, actually, because you and I are both in, in the Northeast. Now we're both in New York, actually. And right now in the middle of, well, almost the middle of December, it's cold. And we, I've got the heat on and it just pulls the humidity out of everything. I mean, even the tanks that I have, like, really, really like limited ventilation on just pulls it out. I mean, you've got a, a, a decent collection of some more, you know, sensitive species how are you managing like the heating season? Are you making any changes to your, your tanks at all to accommodate it? Or are you just kind of just go with the flow? No, I actually, I miss pretty heavy and I miss quite a lot. So that kind of counteracts that. Um, my biggest problem is usually in the summer when the AC comes on with the dry air over the summer, that's usually when the older frogs will start breeding. And my, my missing cycle is the same throughout the year. You know, but when it comes to the summer, everything just stops breeding because of that. You know, the tanks are a lot drier. Um, you know, usually throughout the winter, they're a little more humid, you know, because of the cooler temperature. I usually try, you know, usually with the heating system, it usually, I have the heating system at about 72. And uh, it just circulates air throughout the entire, you know, the, the entire frog room. I have a mini split in there, so... You know, I don't have to worry too much about it, and I usually only run it at night and just shut it off throughout the day because, you know, with the frog lights, um, you know, they provide enough heat inside the inside the tank. That's a good idea, having a split unit. I, I have the opposite. I get, like, during the summer, because everything, everything I have is in the basement, so it's kind of humid down here anyway, but in the summertime... Yeah. Like the AC does pull a lot of the moisture out of the air, but it's nothing compared to like when I have the heat on because my boiler is down here in the basement too. So it just, yeah. it just like the, the ambient humidity goes down to like nothing. So I end up having really, really missed, missed everything like crazy. So now I'm always just curious what other people do. Yeah. I mean, usually, and then the, the frogs will kick back up, usually breeding, I'd say like end, end of September. And then they'll start going until about, I would say, probably like middle of May. And then they're pretty much are done. So they give their own themselves a dry season with, with the AC coming on, which is kind of good. I don't have to cycle them that way. They cycle themselves. You know? Oh, makes sense. It's a good idea. What about breeding? What what goes into getting them to breed? They just kind of go on their own. And like what? I mean, obviously they're obligate, so they, they raise their tadpoles, but... Like, what's the learning curve with breeding Sylvatica as opposed to like a you know like Pamilio or different obligate? Yeah, a lot. Of, a lot of it is patience. Um, 
you know, I've had pairs for, you know, a year without getting any good eggs or I had a pair of Anchikaya that just, you know, I was starting to question whether or not, you know, that, that other animal was actually a female. Cause I, you know, it was eight months before I saw any eggs and, uh, you know, so it, it's just weird how they are, you know, sometimes they take a long time to settle. Sometimes they'll settle right away. The second you put them in a tank and, you know, they'll lay eggs on the first day or second day. So it all, it all depends on every frog. Every frog is different, you know, but the key thing is to be patient. Um, you know, some people get in it for the wrong reasons. Don't, don't buy a frog thinking that, you know, or a pair of frogs thinking, Oh, I'm going to make a whole lot of money on this. No, you know, by the time you, you, you see your electric bill, you know, the amount of money you're spending on food, this, that, it just kind of evens out when you sell a frog, you know? So. Yeah. I, I, it's like a big money pit. You just, but that's fun. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah for you, sure. you think about all the resources and everything you put because like people don't realize that you, know, you raise a good point like with with the, the climate control you know when you you go into i mean any keeping amphibians or anything that you need some kind of specific husbandry parameters you, know, you buy a tank you buy the substrate the lights background plants or whatever but like then there's like the hidden costs like like yeah like you said like you know like your electric bill whether you're using old lighting your heating bill then there's like, you know, the anxiety factor of like, crap, like my AC isn't isn't working now. Then you got to pay somebody to come in and fix the AC because it's like, you know, like your family's cool. You guys can sit and like roast during the summer, but the frogs can't take it. Yeah. So, you know, you might be paying extra, <laughs> exactly. yeah, you're paying an extra emergency service to come out, um, you know, yeah. get you, get you taken care of like 10 o'clock on a Sunday night when, you know, any normal person might wait till like Monday or Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, we're 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 lucky that we live in New York. I mean, we can call anybody, you know, twenty four seven. If there's a problem here, they'll come out, you know. But other people that live in, uh, you know, more rural areas won't have that that option, you know. So yeah, you know what? I you raise a good point. The other thing is, you and I are also really close. I mean, New York City is obviously a big is a port, like a big shipping port. But I wonder how people who live in like other parts of the country, like, I mean, if any guys are listening, you live in like a really rural part of the country where you're like, say, you know, say you're like a good like four or five hours from like a train station or an airport or anything like that. I'd be curious as to how, uh, like, like what the process is if you order frogs online, if you get them shipped to your house, like what that whole process is. Because like, you're right, Julio, I kind of take it for granted that we live so close, we can pretty much have, you know, anything really, really quick, whether it's repair work or whether it's ordering something or having it shipped to us yeah i gotta i gotta that's an interesting dynamic i gotta look into that getting frogs yeah. into into really like out of the way spots yeah, and i mean the other thing that i wanted to mention with with this past trip it was like you know there was a population of frogs that i wanted to go see and i kept pushing to go see and i knew it was kind of in a dangerous area but they kept telling me that it was no that area it's it's a hot zone right now you know and I was pushing for it a couple of times, and they were like, "No." They were like, "I'm worried about your safety." <laughs> I was like, "I was like, well, I've been there before. It's okay." <laughs> yeah. You know? um, so the people that came on this trip was uh, my brother-in-law Dan, who actually he, he's been there before with me on on the previous trip that we took five years ago, um, when it was Idris and and Damien also Idris from Tinkment Herbs, and um, you know Damien Rama from Renarium. And, uh, 
you know, this trip, you know, Brad Wilson actually also came with, with us and he was asking me about, you know, whether or not, you know, it was possible to go and see them. And I kept telling him, well, you know, I'll let you know if I head down there again, you know, it's a possibility, you know, but, you know, he, we kept canceling this trip, you know, Troy was supposed to be on this trip and he chickened out, you know, because of the safety factor, you know, so, and which I later found out he was blaming it that it was his girlfriend or his wife saying, Oh no, she won't let me go. But then it later found out, Oh no, you said, you know, there was going to be areas that I couldn't talk. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, that's how it is, you know? And the reason why is just, you know, I speak the language, you know, so it's not, you know, I can mediate things and, you know, I can understand, you know, want to go see, a population of frogs that was like the one that I was telling you about that was the small sylvatica, you know, that's twice the size of a familia. And it has the same coloration as, an, you know, an El Dorado familia, pretty much, you know, nice orange pattern with somewhat yellow legs, nice and small. But in that property, you know, towards the end, uh, you know, we're hiking, we're like, all right, we, we went in one area of the forest, we couldn't find the frogs there. And then they were like, uh, you know, there was a bunch of people there and they were like, oh, let's take a picture. And then, you know, Brad kind of mentioned, hey, yeah, they're going to run this through a DAA website. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. They are, you know, but, you know, if they asked you to take a picture, no problem. Well, I'll take a picture with you. And then we later found out that it was just, you know, this is the story that they told me, you know, because they were obviously talking Spanish. So the guy that was there was the mayor of the town and he was trying to promote tourism in the town. And which is not true. I mean, when we went to Red Lamani Habitat with Andreas, it was me, Andreas, and Idris. You know, as we drove by, people were shutting their curtains and stuff like that. And then Andreas told us later on that, you know, people thought we were DEA um, because no foreigners really come through there. So that's basically what it is. So, wow, that's this. I mean, I mean, another thing, like, just so everybody knows, Julio's also, like, six foot five. So, like, I wouldn't... <laughs> I think you got, like, you got, like, the height angle on everybody, too. Because um, I, I wouldn't mess with you if, even if I wanted to. Um, man, that's that's that's, that, that's wild. That, that really is, like, it's... That stuff has got to be so intense, you know, just going down there to, to want to see something that's just so incredibly beautiful. And then the danger and the risk factor and all that that goes along, along into it. That's, that's this way out of my league. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the fact, the fact that, you know, I speak Spanish fluently, um, you know, like you said, I'm a pretty big guy, you know, they know, you know, and, and they can tell, you know, I'm not, I'm not a threat or anything like that. Once I start talking to them and stuff, um, you know, the Nariño, the Nariño, region now it's working with the active conservation alliance you know the active conservation alliance was actually able to buy 10 hectares to donate to you know enlarge a reserve down there um you know none of none of the frogs are found in that area we were trying to find some sort of land to buy under the active conservation society but the problem is or alliance rather the problem is we buy the land down there then somebody has to look after it you know um, there was one guy that was selling a hundred hectares 
um, for, I think it was like $25,000. That was it. But the problem was that that property, you would have to walk through a cocaine field, you know? So we're like, well, that's not going to work, you know? So, and, and obviously, how do you, yeah. how do you know that it's legit though? Like, let's just say someone says, all right, I've got a hundred hectares of land and $25,000 American. Like, how do you know that you're actually, I mean, with everything that's going on there, how do you know that the guy's not just like scamming you or he, you know, like, like how, how is that regulated where you buy land and you actually have some sort of assurance that it legally belongs to you? Yeah, I mean, there there's papers that they have to go through, um, paperwork and stuff like that. So it, it's just like buying land here. So the question is, where where does it really get marked off? You know, because if you stand on this mountain, you know, all it looks like is one giant piece of land. So where does where does it begin and where does it end? You know. And then how do you stop someone from coming in and doing? Because obviously you, you can't monitor it. 24 exactly. seven so yeah so somebody would have to go check up on his land daily you know it, it's just crazy you know there's there's other numerous factor, factors not not just you know not just a drug game there could be logging involved you know so you gotta worry about somebody chopping it down you know it's, it's just too much to deal with so the best thing to do for the active conservation alliance is just to you know donate land to already an existing reserve that they can look after it you know rather than you know having to buy a separate property and go through all that expense of having to pay somebody to go there daily and check on it basically that's got to be huge commitment yeah and with such a large amount of land like how how can you how can you regulate whether or not you know no animals are being taken out (laughs) you know so yeah, it just seems like there's so many different angles that could, that could go wrong. I mean, like let's just say for argument's sake. I mean, if I'm not, an, I'm by no means an optimistic person, so I always think about like the worst possible situations. But like, let's just say you hire somebody to come in, you say, all right, you know, come in, walk walk the land every day or something like that, and then like when no one's looking, the guy just has people come in and like poach the place till it's dry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I really, I mean, it really isn't fair. I mean, there's a lot of good people out there. I, I really shouldn't paint it with such a negative brush but like i would just i would i would be so paranoid about having a piece of property like that and just i, not know, man. I, I grew up in a city so it's like you know my wife always says that my first approach is to be negative or think negative but it's not about thinking negative it's about you know think the worst first and then hope for the best you know so it's like that's always been my approach you know expect the worst hope for the best you know so it's like yeah, she's like, oh, you, you think uh, people are not going to steal this here? And I was like, well, I'm locking it anyway. You know, I'm locking my car anyway. It's just I'm used to being in the city. I grew up in the city, so that's just my mentality. You know? Yeah, no, I, I can I can sympathize with that. I just I don't know. I feel like you like when when we have. I mean, again, like this is this is a pretty like frank and open episode. You know, and like I there's so many different dynamics to like all these situations and it's so easy to just kind of sit and say, Oh great. You know, conservation is happening. And then it's just kind of this little utopia somewhere outside of the U S or outside of Canada or wherever. And you don't really get a full grasp of all the different factors that go into it. And when people explain like how difficult it is, like, I guess you can't really realize how challenging that is until you physically go down there. Like you did. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the good thing is that the Active Conservation Alliance is supporting a local school down there in that area where the Sylvaticas are found. And, you know, the school's actually getting the kids involved to take care, you know, the frogs and look after the, the forest, you know, so they're getting the younger generation involved in it, you know, in, in getting them to stop, you know, smuggling and, you know, and, and it's working out so far is working out great. You know, so, which is the good thing, you know, the kids take pride in, in doing that. They call themselves the guardians of the frogs, um, you know, which is kind of cool. They all have a, a lot of them wear their, their t-shirt proudly, you know, that, uh, they have some of the Sylvatica Moors on it, um, which is part of a, a festival that the Active Conservation Alliance was able to, you know, fund for that. So... For those of you that are not familiar with the Active Conservation Alliance, the Active Conservation Alliance was was formed by Yvonne from Tesoros. And the reason why it was formed is because Tesoros had all these conservation projects that were going on, you know. So Michael Hendricks said, you know, what happens if Tesoros goes down? Then all these projects go down. Um, and I'm not sure. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the coffee project that's going on. Um, in Tolima, where there's two species of Andinobates that are found in, in that area. So they got them to stop using pesticide, you know, and actually bought some of their coffee equipment so they can, you know, manufacture it better. And, you know, Tesora sells their coffee for them. And all the money that's, all the proceeds from that coffee actually goes back directly to those people, you know. So, and... They also had um, was your the Nariño project, obviously, uh, the Supata project, you know, where they had a, the festival as well in Supata, where with the Andino Baby Supata, that that population is dwindling. You know, it's getting to the point where that population might not exist in another ten years. You know, so um, they're trying to conserve all these all these projects and. Um, you know, and one of the important things is the Biopark La Reserva, where it's become a, it's more like a rehabilitation center, you know, so there's all the animals that they have there are animals that cannot be returned to the wild that are taken off the black market, um, or, you know, they got caught at the airport from, from smugglers and stuff like that. So they wind up being at the Biopark La Reserve, you know, La Reserva pretty much is educational animals for kids that come through there, you know, that may never see these animals, but in books. Yeah. That's, that's one of those things that always, I just, I just, you, you have, like when you see something alive up close, it just, you make this connection with it and it's just such an intimate, like you just, you're able to appreciate nature on such a different level and you can just physically interact with it. You know, you're looking at it, you, you hear something call or, you know, it's just like the idea of just seeing something only in the books is just so depressing. Yeah, for sure. You know, so it, it was interesting because uh, on this past trip, you know, my brother-in-law, Dan, is he was the one that caught most of the frogs that, you know, we took pictures of. So we, when we were taking pictures of one frog that he caught, the first koi, the blue-footed morph, and then, you know, he comes back with another one. You know, when we we asked him, like, well, on a scale of one to ten, like, how do you rate this one? 
this was the first frog. He goes, oh, about a four. And then we, me and Brad look at it. It was like, you say this is a four? This is crazy. You know, so because his main thing, he's mostly into insects. You know, so he, he finds all kinds of insects interesting and spiders. So that, that was his main thing. Um, on this past trip, like I said, we couldn't do a night hike just simply because we were just completely dead tired after that hike. Um, you know, we were hoping to go on a night hike somewhere, but we just did not have the energy to do it. Yeah, well, I'll give you a lot of credit. That's 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 a long that's a long trek. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean we're about to wrap up twenty twenty three and um I was just curious, like what like what are your goals frog wise for twenty twenty four? Is there anything new that you're looking to take on? I mean obviously the 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 koi, I'm I'm sure you're gonna have a hand in that, but what are you looking to accomplish uh coming coming from uh January twenty four twenty twenty four moving on? Huh, that's interesting. Um, not quite sure. I mean, I'm at I'm at a point where I have so many histos right now that you know, um, our our hobby is in kind of in a weird state right now. So I have a lot of histos available that nothing seems to be selling right now. So a lot of my stuff I kind of keeping it from breeding. Um, a lot of a lot of the morphs that are, I'm keeping right now. Um, possibly I might I have a lot. Of two groups of this, two groups of that. So there's a possibility that I might cut back on a few, um, you know. But I, I'm not quite sure yet. You know, I did get rid of all my runny tomatoes, um, just simply because I, I just don't have the time to take care of tadpoles. Um, the only dendrobates I'm currently keeping right now are just uh, Tinctorius, uh, Azurius, and uh, you know the. Colombian Aratus. Other than that, you know, everything else I pretty much got rid of just simply because I have no time for tadpoles with the kids. Um, so, yeah. And my tanks are not clean at all. <laughs> you know, so it's like I clean my tanks once a year, and that's usually during Christmas and New Year's break. And this year, we're going to be away. <laughs> And my mom, so that's not even going to happen this year. So I don't know when the frog room is going to get clean. I'm I'm looking around and I'm thinking the same thing. I I did um <laughs> I, I pruned everything back and like I my one of the like the the Santa Isabel's tank I just like ripped that apart, and I had this really nice mushroom bloom in there. I had these little like they looked like like cartoon mushrooms. They were just so perfect, and like they're kind of dying off now. But like I mean I'm looking at some of these some of the tanks and like. Like the exoterras look great. The exoterras, for some reason, just stay really, really clean. I think it, maybe it's just like the the additional ventilation, but like everything else that I've got in the aquarium, oh, it's it's like swamp thing in there. Just everything's green and like filthy. And like, <laughs> yeah, I was telling I was telling somebody, um, I can't remember who it was. I, it was it was somebody I had on the show a couple in the past couple of weeks, and we were talking about show show tanks versus practical tanks. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was like just. I was like, with the exception of like five people out there, and I think we all know who they are. Um, not all of us keep, <laughs> a, not all of us like have these really like crazy show tanks that we keep immaculately yeah, clean. Trying his little pretty tanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a kind of a deep dark secret among uh, amphibian keepers. But yeah, I just I re I rehoused one of my tarantulas before I I got you on, and um, I, I'm like, man, I'm like, this is so much easier. Just it looks so nice and. 
there's nothing growing or like crawling out of the top of the tank. I was like, this is like this is what I have to be into from now on. Like this plant game is just it's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> Problems. Yeah, well, I mean the frogs seem fine. They they kinda like enjoy the you know, not being able to not, you know, I only see the frogs unless I won't see them unless I open the tank doors, which is fine. It actually allows me to vent the tanks as well. So I open up every single tank every day, just simply just check up on the frogs, you know, see how they're doing, this and that. I, I mean, I don't spend, you know, any more than like two or three minutes per tank. You know, that's about it. Yeah. So, I've, yeah. I, I actually noticed I, one of my, one of my Azurius, I had a, I had actually had two females in one tank that they grew out together and they were fine. And then one of the females, she must have like died because just up and disappeared. And the second one, I'll tell you, I never see her out at all anymore. When I had the two of them out, I used to see them out all the time. Since that one disappeared, I, I very rarely ever see that female. And I'm wondering if, like, I, I'll periodically, I just really prune that tank back to where there's just, like, so much less clutter in there. So I don't know if it's just, like, when she, I don't know if she's out when it's really, really cluttered and I'm just not seeing her. And then when I clear it out, she disappears, but... I don't know. It's weird. Like, it's just Azurius went from being this is like one of my boldest frogs to now I the one I the one I actually see the least. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Frogs are weird, man. Yeah. It could be perfectly fine one day, and then all of a sudden one might drop that on you for absolutely no reason. Yeah, you know? yeah. They're just that sensitive. You know, yeah, you can't make this. And up. that's the main thing that yeah, people that want to get into large obligates. It's one of the things they need to learn. It's simply because. You know, the, the large obligates do stress out a little more easier than, you know, an Azurius would or, or Tinctorius would. So, you know, that's one of the things people, you know, and I know I know this because I've, I've done it when I first, you know, when I was younger and I, I would get a new frog. I would, I would sit in front of the tank and just watch him for hours, you know, but that would stress the hell out of a frog. You know, So just put them in their tank, leave them alone. You know, check on them from a distance where they won't get spooked, you know, when you get close to it. And, you know, eventually they'll, they'll get used to you, you know. It won't take long. And, you know, but the main thing is just minimize stress, you know. You know, here's a question for you. I want to get your opinion on this. So when, we're, when doing vivarium builds with backgrounds, I've got, so I've got kind of a, a 50-50 mix. I have some that I just have the back. You know, there was this one pair of tanks I kind of wanted to do like a like a fallen log type of look, but, you know, like half the log on one side and half the log on the other side. And, you know, the idea the idea was it looked like it would look like one fallen log, but it would be two separate tanks so I could keep two different, you know, species and not keep them in the same tank. So that only has a background along the back. Now, some of my tanks have three wall backgrounds, meaning, you know, left, right, and back are sculpted, covered out, whatever. Do you have a, a preference for that? I mean, you think it makes a difference with regard to the health of the frogs, like reducing stress to have like all three sides as a background, or do you think one is enough? Like, what do you what do you have a take on that? What do you think? Uh, it re- it really doesn't matter. It's it's really preference of uh, where you, how you're going to keep as far as like your you know your decor in there. Um, my preference is you know I usually cover the back with like a a thing sheet of. Uh, you know, cork like a half inch, and you know, through I would say maybe like three quarters of the of the sides, 
Uh, and that's simply just so we can, you know, pin deposition sites, egg deposition sites on each side. No other reason whatsoever, you know. Um, and in the background, you know, just simply because I can put, I can attach uh, either a ledge back there, things like that, you know. But it's really, it really does make a difference to the frogs. It's not going to stress them out if they're side by side next to each other, Um you know, if they see each other, unless they're wild caught frogs, they're not going to stress out over it. You know, if they're wild caught frogs, they will stress out over it a little more. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, over the years, it's like wild caught frogs. You know, you cannot keep them in anything small because they're they will bounce all over the place to the point where they're going to smack themselves against the glass and get hurt. You know, with the captive bred frogs, you know, a lot of times you can just open the tank up and they'll sit right there. And it won't move as much. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's one of those things I always wondered about. You know, different, two different background types make an effect. But yeah, I, mean, I get you about the the um, captive versus wild caught. I can't even imagine keeping a yeah, wild caught frog anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- those days are are pretty much numbered. I mean, there's not that many wild caught frogs that come in. You know, there's a there's a quota on the tanks that you know every year. Same thing with the lukes. So a lot of these frogs now have a have a quota that comes in. Obviously, you know none of the large obligates are coming in wild caught anymore. So everything is goes through Waikiri or Tesoros. You know, as far as the large obligates go, and you can notice the difference. You know, they're they're not as jumpy. You know, so all my large obligate tanks, you know, I used to keep 24-inch cube G4. That's all I used to keep. What's the minimum size was 24-inch cube. You know, and I started noticing that, you know, a lot of these frogs don't really move. And they were just kind of sitting in the same spot the whole time. So then I, I downsized everything to 18-inch cubes, and, and they're fine in there. You know, they breed as well. So with, with no problem. Cool. Well, I know we're both pressed for time, so I want to wrap it up. But um, yeah, I wanted to thank you for. I mean, this the the Columbia story is that's that's going down and was like one of like my favorite stories. That's so that, that's great, especially like the guy getting like kidnapped. I mean, it's terrible, but like what what a man, what a, what an interesting story. But um, you know, but- yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's like I said. I mean, it's yeah, it's a dangerous area, you know. And like the second we posted pictures of you know the koi. After that that hike, the first day, you know, people were like, "Oh, how do you get down there? This and that." They're like, listen, dude, like, not everybody can come down here. It's not like you know, it's not like going to Costa Rica, you know, where you can just you know have more of a safety factor there. It's just not that easy. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can only imagine. <laughs> you know, and we we usually have like one or two guides on these trips. You know, one main guide, and then we hire a local guide. You know, uh, on this one trip, we have four guides. You know, so it was just like, you know, and you got to know somebody that knows somebody, you know, to get into a property or to get into a reserve. You know, so yeah, it's, you know, it can be a little taxing, and then you get down there, and they'll be like, well, it's not safe for us to go, so you're not going to be able to see it, which is what happened to us, you know, five years ago. Yeah, well, I, I mean, better off walking away in one piece, I guess. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. 
Well, I want to thank you again, Julio. Um, we got we got to do a follow up once Koi actually get here. I want to see. I, I got to hear about the the process of getting them in. Maybe we'll get Yvonne back on because I'm sure he'll have a lot to say about that too. Yeah, I mean, we're probably we'll we'll have Yvonne. We were having Frog Day again in New York again. It's going to be October 26th of uh, 2024. Um, so it's going to be over in White Plains, New York. So Yvonne will be there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get Daniel up there as well. So Daniel is one of the guys that's responsible for a lot of the nomenclature changes. Um, he's one of the guys that was responsible for the running to change. You know, he's also discovered numerous frogs. His main thing is fish. Um, you know, so he's always constantly discovering, you know, dwarf cichlids. Uh, you know, he has a, a species of uh, killifish named after him. Um, so he's constantly discovering killifish. You know, last time I spoke to him, he goes to me, I'm in the field right now. I just discovered three species of killifish, you know, so I'll, I'll talk to you when I get back into the city. So, you know, hoping that, uh, he can make it to frog day and then, you know, he'll have a lot to show us and a lot to say. Well, if it's in white plains, I'm going to be there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's like an hour from my house. Even less, yeah. maybe like 45 minutes. It's like that's within my my traveling yeah. radius. See, it's like, you know, you going down into Columbia and going down into this like valley. It's like me leaving my house to go anywhere. It's just not worth it. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we're gonna we're gonna possibly auction off the possibility of going to Koi territory for one person, you know. But there's gonna be certain requirements for that, such as you know, you have to be physically fit. Um, you know, you gotta have travel insurance. Um, so you be on the lookout for that. Um, you know, that's going to be probably one of the hottest item on the auction, um, at frog day. So we'll see how that goes. You know, So definitely something to look forward to. That sounds like a lot of fun. All right, everyone. I want to thank Julio again for taking the time to come and talk to us. And just sometimes a story that goes into, you know, finding, finding a locale and the, the backstory and whatnot. Uh, some of this is a lot more interesting than the frog itself so I'm really thankful to Julio for coming on and talking to me about it and I uh, got a great finale for the 2023 uh, year coming up soon I've got the annual uh, holiday spectacular so stay tuned for that I've got a great guest lined up for that you guys may remember him from uh, previous uh, Christmas specials but um, yeah definitely stay tuned we're going to kind of go out of uh, 2023 with a bang and a lot of good stuff on the horizon for 2024. So make sure you, stu- you stay tuned for uh, next week's episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. Going to cover a lot of ground. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again next time. <laughs>